Welcome to the Refuge Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Matthew Klein. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit myrefuge.ca. discuss that in a minute. I was listening this week. um, I was in the car actually with Mike and his friend and um, we were listening to a Christian radio station and um, I won't say what the ministry was. I used to just call everyone out but I'm getting better so I won't. Um, But we were listening to a a popular Christian radio program and it deals with psychology and stuff and and they were talking a little bit about love languages, and then they were proceeding to talk about um, struggling with anger and how you overcome anger. So we've been in this really long series now. I think Ethan got all the messages up uh, yesterday, so we think he put up like nine yesterday. So it is quite a bit of work for him to do each one. There's a lot of audio intro and exit and stuff, so I appreciate him doing that. Um, Anyways, there's a ton up. I think we have almost 11 in uh, Life Led by the Spirit series, so it's a great series, and one day we'll market it and package it and put in something cool, but right now it's just online, and and I, I would say we're maybe halfway into it, so there's so much to know. The Christian life is so much more about what it means to be led by the Spirit and what a Spirit-led life looks like. Where I'm trying to take you guys from is from a life that we grew up where everything was based on self-effort and kind of a religious version of Christianity, which I think is still mostly taught in the church today. And so I wanted us to journey from a place where Christianity is nothing more really than an experience where we meet Jesus, invite him into our heart, and then endeavor through much difficulty to live out a Christian life, which means occupying a space of high moral standard and behavior. And so it it becomes a big deal about behavior instead of ambassadorship and kingdom expansion and glory and power, which is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. It isn't supposed to be built on just words and philosophies and speech or homilies or sermonizing. It is actually meant to be built on Jesus, and his, the evidence and the example that Jesus left for us is that he was a person that operated in power, and specifically the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about what that means. 
when your mind finally adjusts to that in Scripture, you will see an entirely new message pull out of the pages. When you start to see that life led by the Spirit, or the Spirit this, the Spirit that, throughout the whole New Testament, when your mind begins to change to that this is a supernatural thing, walking in the Spirit is spending time praying in the Spirit and listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say, which is the Father, what the Father's saying to you, and you're listening to that, then the Bible is going to take on a whole new meaning because otherwise a lot of the scriptures just don't seem to make sense. What does it mean to actually walk in the Spirit? How do I walk in the Spirit? And I was joking with you guys about my dad when he first got saved where he went into that old church and he was saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. And he started walking down the aisle because really, I mean, it's funny, but but the rest of us don't really know what it is either. I mean, so for all the time we've spent in church, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And so for most of us, the idea has been, well, it just means that I ask Jesus in my heart and I do my bestest, bestest to be a good, good Christian, and that is walking by the Spirit, and the answer is no, it's not. Yeah, it has nothing to do with inviting Jesus into your heart. That is not how you walk by the Spirit. In fact, I don't know how much of an invitation Jesus actually needs. <laughs> the Lord of glory doesn't need a whole lot of inviting. He just kind of does. Have you, have you ever experienced the Lord just invade, invade your life without an invitation? Right? Yeah. He'll, he'll bring some trials without invitation. He will make you see things without invitation because he, he is like a relentless lover. He is going to come after you because he is crazy wild about you. And there, you know, people that don't know Jesus at all, there, there's a great story in one of the transformational videos that was um, made years ago about just revival happening in different communities. And there was this guy who was involved in, in, in the drug trade and he was actually on his way to kill someone. He had a revolver on his front seat, and they kind of do this reenactment. And as he was driving on the way, there was this church that really started focusing on just praying. So they just spent tons of time praying in the Spirit, having prayer meetings at the church, and there's just a lot of prayer going on. And as this guy is driving by on this road, he drives by this church on his way to kill somebody. He's, he, there's a hit out on this guy. And he says, I, I physically feel myself turning the car into the church parking lot thinking, what am I doing? And he parked the car and he walked into the church and he walked down the center aisle and stood in front of the pastor and said, I need Jesus. <laughs> and he had no idea what he was doing. And he was conscious the whole time of going, what am I doing and the Lord met him, and he got wonderfully saved. And so there is a power that we need, but the thing is, is we've made it kind of about moral obligation, and so we've literally sucked the life out of this vibrant faith that should be full of power, and that power meets people and changes them. Because there's a power when Paul was even preaching, when Peter was preaching the gospel, and then we have to talk about what gospel is, but when, when they preached the gospel, people were being filled with the Holy Spirit because they were preaching. And I would argue that that doesn't happen a lot anymore. There's a lot of people jumping up going, hey, I just felt something powerful, and I think the Lord just met me because you did that great homily on the missionary journeys of Paul the Apostle. And it's just not happening like it was meant to happen. There is something powerful that is meant to happen. So I'm listening to this, this radio program, 
and they were discussing um, how you overcome anger. Now, these are seasoned people that, you know, they've been doing this a long time. And I was astonished at the advice that was coming over the radio to hundreds of thousands of Christians that I'm sure are listening in. And, and this stuff has been in books and whatever. And, and literally the response was, if you are experiencing anger as an adult, you know, as a child, we don't have a lot of control of our behavior, but as an adult, we can modify our behavior. So if we are feeling really angry at our children, our spouse, or at work, that one of the best things to do is you remove yourself from the situation and you maybe count to 10. That's how you do that. One of the other ways that you can modify your anger, because you want to modify your behavior so it's reflective of Christ, right? I mean, that is the goal. And so as you modify your behavior to be more Christ-fitting and Christ-like so that you fit in the group that we call Christian, then the other thing you might do is you, he was suggesting that you get a watering can, and if you have flowers, in this lady's case it was petunias, that you would then go and water your petunias to take a break, and they laughed about how she was so angry one year that she almost drowned her poor petunias trying to deal with the anger. So I have Mike in the car and his young friend, and, I, and at this point, so, so I'll, I'll give you what I gave them because it's the unchurched, unfiltered Matthew Klein in the raw in my car. I said, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> They're like, what, Dad? I'm like, these two yahoos on the radio. I, I said, what is so mind-blowing to me? And I'm thinking, how can I simplify this so that a 12-year-old, 11-year-old can understand? I said, let me, let me put it to you guys this way. If I want to overcome anger, what I need is patience. What I need is long-suffering. So those things are called the fruit of the Spirit. And I said, so if my desire is to have fruit of spirit, then how would a natural man develop fruit of a spirit? Like if I'm a natural person living in a natural world, but what I need is spiritual fruit, then would I go about that in a earthly way or would I go about that in a spiritual way? And instantly, both of them are like, well, you, you would go about that in a spiritual way. I said, so I would need a spiritual mechanism or a spiritual tool or a spiritual way of doing something to develop spirit fruit, not a watering can, <laughs> right? Not a counting mechanism. The way we move into the things of the Spirit is not going, one, one wonderful minute, Two, two wonderful minutes of non-anger. This is ridiculous, but this is what is taught as truth on Christian airwaves. Because let me tell you something, God is not interested in modifying your behavior. He's interested in transforming your whole character, but that requires spirit. That requires some power to make that happen. But if your whole endeavor is to try to be like Jesus in the flesh, that's dumb. If you're trying to be a supernatural person and to reflect who Jesus is, and you try to do it the way Jesus didn't do it, that's ridiculous. 
And why so many people feel like they fail at their Christianity or they don't feel close to God or they feel like they're failing or they're just not getting ahead or they thought they would have grown further or walked with the Lord closer or they would have heard his voice more and they're just not getting there. It's because you're trying to approach God in a natural, physical way. Now, Paul addresses this a little bit in Ephesians from the flip side. As he says, look, you're not, stop wrestling around in flesh and blood. Stop trying to overcome your anger by means of like your flesh and your blood, like tasks and, you know, counting sheep to overcome anxiety at night, you know, because this people do. Distract yourself. Distract yourself. If you're feeling anxious about this, distract yourself. And I'll tell you what, when I'm expecting one of my sons to be home at 11 o'clock at night and it's 12.30 and I don't know where they are, nothing is going to distract me from the anxiety that I am feeling. It doesn't matter what I do. I can't distract, because if you've ever experienced anxiety, it's a little bit, how do you say, overwhelming, <laughs> right? It's not like, well, you know, I'll just put that anxiety in that little box and I'll just think about the wonders of snowflakes and creation. It just doesn't really work, right? Because the whole definition of anxiety is that it's this overwhelming emotion that you can't seem to box in. It overtakes your thoughts. And in that moment, you need something supernatural. You need some supernatural power to overcome that. But we're all wrestling around in flesh and blood, including opening up the Bible looking for a good verse. Again, it's still a physical means. Even though it, it, it is a spiritual book, but here, here you're, you're doubly doomed if you just open up your Bible. Because Scripture itself says that, that this book is spiritual and is only ascertained or understood by spiritual means. So the person who's already in the natural, he's already being carnal, carnally goes to Scripture to try to understand it in the brain, is already in trouble. Because it's a spiritual book. It's like going to a magic book and you're not a magician. Going to a book of spells and you're not a wizard. It doesn't do you any good. Yeah, yeah, you go. Yeah. 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 Love it. Perfect story. Perfect story. See, Jesus even said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, but you do not find me. These people that dedicated their lives to studying scripture. And that yet, when Jesus himself shows up, even performing miracles, 
Raising dead people. They're like, yeah, I don't think that's it. That's not what we're looking for. So it shows you that you can be a diligent student of the scriptures. You can have a PhD in Bible and completely miss the point. I've read enough commentaries to know that you can have a PhD and miss the point entirely. Because I can see in many of the things that I read that there is a carnal man in all his education and understanding trying to discern something spiritual and cannot do it. The Bible is a book of mystery. Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. It was supposed to be mysterious. You need, you need the password to get in. Otherwise, it's totally encrypted. Understand that Scripture is it's worse than at 128-bit encryption. You cannot comprehend the true meaning of what's going on. I haven't shared this here, so I'll share it. I'll give you an example. So one day, I, I was prepping for a message, and I said, Lord, I, I just, I don't really know what you want me to share. I have this feeling like I want to talk about Peter in the, in the garden of Gethsemane there, and, and, and the story where the, the, um, the servant of the high priest gets his ear cut off. I just, there's something there, and I'm reading it, and, and as I'm reading it, I'm just like, this kind of flag goes off for me. And I'm like, something's there, but I don't know what it is. Because I know I'm approaching it with a carnal mind. I'm trying to go, you know, so Peter cuts this guy's ear off, and then Jesus heals the guy. So I start reading commentaries. And the commentaries are saying things like, well, we can tell by this passage that Peter was probably left-handed, you know and that he would have swung, and I'm like, I don't think that's the point. I, I don't think that this passage has survived 2,000 years of people trying to burn it and destroy it to tell us Peter might have been left-handed and had a real good swing because he was a fisherman, and then it goes into the history of fishermen and how they had to pull nets, and so he would have developed certain muscles, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. These, these are Christian people. So let me tell you something. <laughs> If I can take a passage of scripture and go into a public junior high school and get the same enlightenment out of that passage as reading a commentary, that's not a good commentary, right? If I go to a secular group, they would say the same thing. Well, this just tells us if you read that text that Peter could have been left-handed and strong because he was a fisherman. They could figure out the same stuff. So let's be honest when we say that's not spiritual enlightenment. There's something missing in, in the story. So I began to question. I said, Lord, what's, what's going on here? I feel like something's going on. But I don't know quite what it is. Because I don't... So the, I read on, on some of the other commentaries. They said, this is just another example of Jesus showing his miraculous power. And I'm like, do we need this extra story right at the end? I mean, they, they've come to arrest him. The whole... Um, Paschal is about to play out like he's he's going to go to the cross he's going to be beaten like this this whole story is is about to be laid out and we need to know that Jesus also does appendages is this important right because we hadn't had him do an ear trick yet and now we know he does ears eyes nose and throat he does the whole deal blindness leprosy we some of the things weren't mentioned we don't know if he does those but at least he we know he so if you ever lose an ear Jesus is good for it. If you get a bad cold, we're not sure it's not in Scripture, right? Like, is that why it's there, to tell us that? And I thought, no, something, something else has to be going on. 
So as, as I began to look at it, again, I felt the Lord say, look up their names. What, what did the characters in the story, what, what do their names mean? While Peter means rock, we, we know that. But it was interesting because this guy, this high priest's servant, his name's Melchus. And Melchus is a Greek name, not a Jewish name. And so he was probably a Greek slave that had been purchased and was now a Gentile slave of the high priest. And I look up his name, and his name means kingdom. I'm like, that's interesting. We've got a guy in this story, and his name means kingdom. And all of a sudden, in one beautiful picture, the Holy Spirit just went, and I just saw it in my mind, all of a sudden. And I mean, it was just so overwhelming in that moment. I just burst into tears. I couldn't believe the beauty that the Lord just laid out for me. It's like I didn't know anything about that passage, and suddenly I knew everything about that passage. And that's called a supernatural moment. That is spirit reckoning. That is only the spirit can do that. That isn't just something that's just you work at it and work at it till you figure it out. And so the Lord laid it out like this for me. He said to me, um, Peter means rock. And it's Peter, the rock that draws the sword. Like the law, it has no mercy or grace. And it cuts, it, it brings out the sword. And he said, and he takes the sword off and cuts the ear, which this is a servant of the high priest. And so prophetically, there's a statement happening right at this moment that because they have broken the law over and over again or are followers after the law, the law strikes out and no longer would the race of Israel have ears to hear. In Jesus' entire ministry, he'd say, and to him who has ears, let him hear. You see it in the book of Revelation. To him who has ears, let it hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so no longer was Israel going to have an ear to hear any longer. Immediately upon that ear being cut off, Malchus would have grabbed his right ear because that was the ear that was cut off. Now what some of you might not know is that in the Old Testament, when they would anoint a high priest, what they would do is they would go and take blood and they would take that blood and they would put it on the right ear lobe of that priest. And then they would put blood on the right thumb and they would put blood on the right toe. Immediately after having his right ear severed, he would have grabbed his head with his right hand, and now he has blood covering where his right ear is, or was, and it would still be on the ear, and then he has blood covering his thumb, blood would have been pouring down the inside of his body and running down on his bare toe on his open sandals that they would have worn in that time, and blood would have covered him. And so then the Lord showed me this, that Jesus reached down, and this is the miracle that Jesus is doing. He takes the ear of this Gentile who is representative of Israel. Now Israel doesn't hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And he takes that ear and attaches it to that Gentile and says, but now I'm going to give the Gentiles the ears to hear what I have to say. And they will become a kingdom, which is what his name means, of priests unto me. And in that moment, Jesus transferred and anointed the Gentile race and gave us ears to hear what the gospel of Jesus was in that moment. Does that feel like spirit to you? That's powerful. And that's hidden. I've never heard anybody talk about that. 
I, I can't describe you the privilege I felt in that moment of the Lord opening up my mind to see that. I'm like, and, and the way you know it's the Lord is there's no way you can make up stuff that good. It's too amazing. It's too amazing. Another day I was reading through and I was reading the, the story of Samson. And Samson comes upon this, this carcass of this lion and uh, he finds this, uh, this um, hive growing in it of bees. And so he's headed home, and so he reaches in, and the, the, I think the bees are gone, and he takes some honey, and, and it goes home to feed his family. And again, I stopped, and I said, Lord, what's going on? Why do we need to know about uh, Samson's eating practices? Does he like honey? Is that important? Right? Why do we have a story of dead lions in the middle of the road? I said, Lord, what's going on? And again, the Holy Spirit, I felt, come to me and said, where, where is he? Where is Samson? So I get out my Bible maps, and I'm looking at the story and where it happened, and it actually tells us what city he's going to and what city he's coming from. And so Samson was in Judah. And so this lion was a lion of Judah. And as soon as I saw that it was from Judah, the Lord spoke to me again and said, out of the body of a dead lion of Judah will come honey, is the promise, a land flowing of milk and honey, that my promise would come. And Samson reached in, and out of the body of the death of this lion of Judah, he went back to feed his family the sweetness of the honey. And in that moment, too, the Lord said, oh, yeah, and there's tons everywhere but he goes no one asked me no one's asking they're they're coming at it trying to understand it in the carnal mind without coming humbly you see because the scripture says that god gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud so the proud that approach scripture with all their master degrees and their phds from this college and that college and they think they're going to try to figure it out the lord laughs literally the Bible says that wisdom laughs because the true things of God's Spirit, they, see, they're in hidden, they're in a hiding place, and you have to go and get alone with him to find them. And he's eager to share them. He wants to share them, but he just won't share them with anybody because you have to know his heart. And when you, know, you get to know him, you get to know his heart. And when you get to know his heart, then you get to understand his words. See, because in intimate relationship, you develop a language. Victoria and I have a language that we know what we're talking about. And other people will come in and go, well, that wasn't kind of nice what you said or did. And I'm like, no, you don't understand what's going on. Or I might get irritated and they're like, well, she was being nice. I'm like, no, you don't know. <laughs> you know, it's how she said it. I know. I know what she's saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a little double on dog. So, because there, there's a language that happens in intimacy, and you would misunderstand the written word unless you know the individual writing the words. And this is why we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to understand the Spirit and walk with Him and understand Him and, and dwell in His presence. And as we do, see, here's the funny thing, that so many believers in Christendom are trying to live this supernatural Christian life without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 
They hope if they just go to church on Sunday and get a good sermon on you're spending too much time on your iPhone and you need to actually come to church more, read your Bible more often, then they'll feel guilty enough and overcome that and do something that that's going to give them some kind of victorious life. And it's, it's, it's really ridiculous. It, it's literally like thinking you're going to become an Olympic-level athlete if you watch swimming on TV. How, how do you become, if you want to become a great swimmer, you can't watch swimming. You have to get wet, right? You have to get in the pool. And you have to spend a lot of hours there and a lot of time there in the pool, wet. Nobody got good at swimming without getting wet. You have to get wet a lot, over and over and over. And you have to jump in the pool. And you have to go when you don't feel like it. You've got to go up early in the morning and you have to go late at night. And you have to get in the pool and your muscles ache and you're tired and you're sore. And sometimes you get sick of swimming and sometimes you're like, I'm tired of swimming. But that's the way you get good at it. That's the way you understand it. I love the story. Um, some uh, American snipers will tell you the story of when, when they become really good sharpshooters. A lot of them will file the skin off their trigger finger so that it's totally raw. Cut it down so that you can just see a little bit of the blood vessels exposed. They'll expose the entire trigger finger, so that when they're, they got their hand on the, on the handle, they, before they even touch it, they can feel the pain a little bit, right? It's a little bit of breeze in between the trigger and their finger, they can feel it. So they develop a sensitivity so that when they pull it, it requires pressure, they feel it, because they become sensitive to it. And that's how the working of God's Spirit is, right? It's, it's, a, it's like a gentle breeze. There's a movement, and you have to learn to be sensitive to it. God, are you moving here? Oh, oh that's more my flesh. And oh, there you are, I feel. It's like a stream, right? Have you ever been swimming in a lake before? Especially in Canadian lakes. We go to Kelowna a lot. And so it happens. Sometimes you jump in. On some of the days, the lake isn't that warm. And for me, that's anything under 75. (laughs) I like the lake to be almost where the fish are dying kind of temperature. It's about 79, 80, which is, then I like it. But but anything colder than that, you don't like it so much. So, but have you ever found yourself in a lake and you're swimming and it's kind of cold and then it's like, and then you hit a spot and it's like, oh, that's warm. It's like, I don't know what's going on in the water. No one's around me peeing. So I know something happened. It was just like I, I caught a warm stream. Same in, same in the ocean. There's jet streams in the ocean where the warm water moves. And the, and the moving of the Spirit's like that. It's like, a, it's like a Chinook breeze. It's moving. And so as you spend time with Him, you start to learn the movings of the Spirit. This is what Jesus did. And what's so amazing is that as Christians, we have thought that we could just struggle on His own. That the event is I accept Jesus in my heart and I should just figure it out. You know, it just doesn't work that way. That it literally, again, back to the Olympic thing, it, it's like, or, or let's use a soldier. It's like you decide you want to join the military. So you come up and you sign up and then you think, awesome, I'm a Navy SEAL. <laughs> no, no, signing up's great. But how many know that between signing up and being successful on the battlefield, there's some stuff that happens in between and we call that training that you just don't, like nobody hands you a gun. There you go, here's your M16, here's your camo, here's your face paint, good luck, right? We wouldn't do so well. 
those guys would get killed right away. They wouldn't make it, right? But they have to go through some training. They've got to break these guys down. They've got to learn to obey commands. They've got to be tuned to hear and to listen and to listen quickly, right? Because when your colonel says, duck, and you go, what? Then you die, right? You, don't, you, you can't say what. You hear duck and you duck. There's no, well, let me process that. We're, we're going to have a committee meeting on ducking, whether we're going to duck or not, and then we'll get back to you on whether we agree with you. No, it's like the Lord says something and you just do it. So, so much of the spirit life is about that. Galatians 5 says this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. <laughs> Notice it doesn't say it was for moral conduct. It was for great behavior that Christ set us free. Therefore, it says, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, what's he, what's he talking about? Well, are you you're going to pull it? Uh, sorry, it's Galatians 5. I, I can grab it here. I think it's just starting in verse 1. Oh, what's that? That's interesting. Don't put up budgets when I'm up here. I get nervous. I lose, I lose a piece in my spirit. <laughs> it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And what, what Paul's addressing to the Galatians is he said these, these Judaizers are coming in and they're trying to put law on you. They're trying to get you to follow the rules because they're not getting it. They, they just think Christianity is, is, is like the 2.0 version of Judaism. It's just Jesus plus Judaism. Jesus plus law. Jesus plus a bunch of stuff you still have to do. And one of the things that they were trying to get them to do is, is they were telling all these Gentiles, you need to get circumcised. Like, if you're going to be really serious about Jesus, then you've got to become Jewish. That was just Jesus' requirement. Jesus wasn't looking for people to become Jewish. Jesus was trying to show people the kingdom of God. It, Jesus wasn't even, now, now hear me when I say this, Jesus was not trying to start a religion. He was trying to bring the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But it's in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings a rightness in the world, a rightness to you, where sin has diseased us and, and inflamed us and made us ill, all our worries and our doubts and our unbeliefs and our struggles, that disease that we have, the Holy Spirit has come through Jesus to heal you of that, to make it right, to make you righteous and to give you joy and to give you peace, but that is found in the Spirit, not in your effort okay? It's not in your striving, but it is in your resting. It isn't through your effort. It is through your abiding, because it has to be the work of the Spirit. It has to be the joy of the Spirit. It has to be the fruit of the Spirit. See, when you become patient because you've abided with the Lord, it's His patience operating through you. When you start, you know, telling a bunch of Christians, you need to go out and love the world, love people, and be kind, do random acts of kindness, and be generous, and none of you are generous enough, and you've got to commit more, and, and again, it's just all self-effort. 
This is all Judaizing what was supposed to be Christianity. What was supposed to be just following Christ. Because when I abide, those things just happen naturally. I don't even think about them. They just flow from my life. I don't act generous because I try to imitate Christ. I don't do anything to try to imitate Jesus. You're not supposed to try to imitate Jesus. You're not supposed to go, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then try to be like that. Because when you walk in the Spirit, you just do what Jesus would have done without ever thinking about it because you know because the Spirit's telling you what to do. You don't think, what would Jesus do? You just think, Spirit of God, lead me, and then the Spirit of God leads you. And you just do then naturally what the Spirit leads you to do rather than thinking, well, see, Jesus didn't want people imitating him. He was saying, look, I'm, I'm the way and the truth and the life about what kingdom life is. Because what did Jesus do? The only thing Jesus actually wants you to imitate is how he did the things he did. But how he did it is it says that Jesus didn't do anything that he didn't first hear from the Spirit or the Father speaking to him to do. So he spent a lot of time praying and saying, Father, I'm, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I got this ragtag group of disciples and they are not getting it. They keep saying dumb stuff. And like, I, it's pretty simple, but they're not getting it. And where do you, what do you want me to do today? So the Spirit of God would kind of just speak to him and say, today, just, they're going to get on a boat and just let them go. So they're all anxious and they all get on the boat in Galilee. And Jesus, by the Spirit, he goes, oh, I'm not getting on that boat. There's a storm coming. Jesus, we got to go. We got to get to the other side. You know, we got to get your ministry going. There's people over there. They need to hear the word. They need to hear the good news. And, you know, we were all talking about it. We had a meeting. We had a committee meeting. And we voted and we decided we need to be on that side of Galilee to forward your ministry. Peter's got a whole marketing plan. It's totally going to work out. You got to totally lead. Follow us. And Jesus goes, No, that's okay, guys. You go without me because I can't be led by you. I have to be led by the Spirit. So he just said no. And so they make it out on the lake, and a storm comes up. Jesus goes, yeah, that's why I wasn't supposed to do that. And they're all freaking out. We're going to die. Jesus' ministry's over. We shouldn't have gone on this boat. And then the Spirit of God says, go walk out in the water there and meet him. Okay. He goes out. You see, he was led by the Spirit. And he did things by the Spirit. You ever wonder where the disciples were when he's sitting at the well talking to that Samaritan woman? Where are they? Who knows? He probably just snuck off. They're like, where did Jesus go? Ah, oh, he left again. Doesn't he know we're trying to stick the plan here? And he's off sitting at a well with a woman just having a private conversation. You think, this is the Lord of glory. This is the Prince of Peace. This is the God of gods who's come down from his throne. And he takes the time out to sit with a Samaritan woman at a wool. That just means half Jew, half Gentile. So the Gentiles didn't like him and the Jews hated him. She was excluded. And, and men weren't supposed to talk to women either in that time, not in a public space. And Jesus talks to her and says, uh, he leads her because he already knows by the Spirit what's going on. He goes, so you married? She's like, yeah. He goes, yeah, like five times, right? She's like, whoa. Who's this guy? How does he know this stuff? He goes, and you said right, actually, that you're not married because the one you're with now you're not even married to. Oh, this guy knows stuff. 
That's freaking me out. Because he's just being led by the Spirit. And he's speaking to her about spirit things. And he says to her, if you draw from me, I'm the living water. You'd never be thirsty again. She goes, where can I get this water? He goes, right here. And he takes time out of, of like, like if I was planning Jesus' itinerary, that woman wouldn't have been on it, right? I'd have tried to get him some big tour dates, like at temple, at synagogue, where there's thousands of people to listen. But in one moment, he's speaking to 5,000, and in the next moment, he's sitting at a well. In one minute, he's speaking from a boat to the crowds, and the next minute, he's sitting in the dirt with an adulterous woman. In one moment, he's performing a miracle in front of a giant crowd, and next moment, he's having a private moment on a cross with a thief. So would you remember me? I remember you. Nothing else required. What did the thief do? Nothing. Will you remember me? I remember you. You see, and that was a life led by the Spirit, but he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. He knew he didn't know what he needed to do without the Spirit. Jesus didn't even attempt to live the life he lived without the Holy Spirit. So how do we do it? How are we going to do it? If Jesus couldn't do it, if Jesus needed that time with his Father to know what he was supposed to do, how are we ever going to know what we're supposed to do unless we are walking and abiding the Spirit? We can't know. Requires humility. Okay, we'll do Galatians 5 another night. So 1 Corinthians 2, I'll read this to you. And when I came to you, brethren, listen to what Paul's saying. Now, Paul, again, I've said this to you many times. He's as educated as they come. He's like got PhDs up the wahoo. He's like, he knows everything, all right? He's been taught multiple languages. He's a smart guy. But he says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, there just destroys <laughs> everything we learn in Bible school about how to prep a message in a sermon. He's pretty clear. I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He's not just saying worldly wisdom. He's saying my goal wasn't to come and have a great homily, to prepare an awesome message that you were like, that was a fantastic PowerPoint, Paul. You nailed it. The graphics, the imagery, it all flowed. Loved the font. You nailed it. Used big words. I had to look them up on my iPhone because I didn't know what you were talking about, and that impressed me. He didn't do that. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Listen to what he says. So that, this is the reason, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
You see, this immediately debunks the reason for why you would ever go to like Christian apologetic conferences or things where you are just trying to get knowledge. Because he's saying, I come to you with knowledge because I don't want your faith to rest on some superior knowledge. I don't want you to think you're smarter than everyone else or you have better doctrine than everyone. That isn't why I'm not coming to you with that. I'm coming to you with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would rest on that. See, because the beauty is this. If people come to you and say, well, I heard at your church you don't believe God's going to torture people for all time. I don't know if I agree with that. And you're like, yeah, I don't know how to answer those questions, but did you have a really rough time? I just, I just felt the Lord speak to me. You had a real rough time in your childhood. I just sense that your dad really abused you. I just, I just get this picture that he's chasing you with a stick all the time, and you're screaming, and the person starts crying. How do you know that? Oh, I'm just the Spirit wants to speak. It doesn't matter. That stuff that all of a sudden doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because that's a display of God's Spirit and His power. And that person goes, oh, wow. And he goes, yeah, the Lord just wants to give you a vision of where he was when that was happening so that you start to put your attention on where he was instead of the trauma that was happening to you. And it's gonna bring instant healing to you. He, he's gonna erase it like it never happened. So just let me pray for you. Yeah, you can pray for me. They're not gonna wanna debate you about hell after that. It won't matter. What does it matter? Whether you believe in a place called hell or you don't, it doesn't get you into heaven either way. It's not a requirement of salvation. It doesn't matter. We don't break fellowship over such things. I don't even argue with people anymore. If you want to hold on to hell, hold on to hell. You're going to view God angrily, though. It probably won't work out for you. But if you need to, then do. It's okay. God still loves you. He loved me when I used to. But the manifest power of God wants to move through his church because he loves people. When we stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, you know, what was your take on water baptism? Did you practice communion weekly, monthly, biannually, subannually? How often? When you baptized, did you do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just in the name of Jesus? I need to know. Was it a Jewish mitzvah, or did you believe it was a relic and you focused on He's not going to ask you any of those questions. You say, did you feed my sheep? Did you love people around you? Did you care for them? Did you set time aside for people that were struggling or just tell me you're busy, you had to go to your church council meeting? That, that, those are the questions he's going to be asking. Because Jesus didn't care about the Pharisees' doctrine. In fact, he would throw bombs in their, in, inside of their conversations to confuse them, and then he'd walk away and go heal people. <laughs> they'd, they'd come to him with these puzzles because the Pharisees wanted to know if they were more right than the Sadducees, and the Sadducees wanted to know if they were right over the Pharisees, and Jesus would throw a, a statement in there that would confuse both of them, and then he would walk away, and then they would argue, and he'd be about the business of the kingdom because the kingdom isn't about speech. The kingdom's about power and transformation. So I'll finish with this. Because that's where Paul's saying, I want your faith to not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Because when your faith is built on God's power, because you see God do stuff, it becomes unshakable. 
if your faith is based on philosophy and sermonizing and words of men, then it's shakable when you hear different words and different philosophies. But when it's built on God's power, you won't. Yet we do not speak wisdom amongst those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Verse 10, I'll skip down. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For among men, who knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have, not, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. It says, but the natural mind, natural man, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is why there's been so much fight in the church over the gift of speaking in tongues, because it's foolishness. It's foolishness to the natural man, the man who carnally thinks it's foolishness, as if God's going to get us to speak in some unknown language, blah, 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 blah. Why is he going to do that? That's silly. Well, he he gets you to do it because it is silly. He gets you to do it so that you have to become like a child to to enter into kingdom things. It's kind of a test. Are you willing to be childish? Are you willing to be foolish on account of the Lord? Are you willing to go Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let my spirit just move through you and that you can speak to me that way or do you have to figure everything out? Because if you have to figure everything out, you and I aren't going to talk very much because you're going to try to attain your understanding of me up here, but the understanding of me, or me comes in here in the spirit you won't figure it out here and you're just going to be frustrated and you're going to be empty and your Christian faith is going to be nothing but a struggle and something you see from the distance. You will look into kingdom things wishing you could see them but won't. Just like the Pharisees, they looked into the scriptures longing to see the Messiah and couldn't see him. Sorry, I said I'd end with that verse but I forgot I had this. And I just found out Mormon churches, their services are four hours long, so. (laughs) (laughs) So often this model is used uh, for Trinity, kind of, but I want to show you something different. So I want you to imagine that this is the Father, and this is the Son, and this is us, the Bride. And this whole story is a love story that the father would find a bride for his son. You see it happen throughout the Old Testament. Fathers going out and looking for brides for their sons. We are the church. God has found us and has made us into a glorious bride for his son. And seeing Jesus would say these words, Father, that they would that they would know the love that you and I have for one another and that they would be in us like you are in me and I am in you. And that was Jesus' desire. In fact, I was praying over it one day and said, Lord, why, why is Jesus crying so bad 
in the garden. I mean, he knows what's going to happen. And prophetically, he would have known. He understood all the scriptures. He would have also known by the spirit and by word of knowledge that he was going to the cross. Why is he weeping? Why is he crying? Why does he say, Lord, if possible, take this cup from me? I said, Lord, why? I, I don't believe Jesus was in fear. Because he would say, the Lord hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and soundness of mind. So Jesus isn't really struggling with fear, I don't believe. So I said, Lord, what's he struggling with? And it was so beautiful. I, oh, I asked Jesus, I said, like, you were there, you're the one upset. Why are you crying? He said, because I was sad for my bride that I had to go and they wouldn't understand that I was going to die and they would be hurting and lost and confused. If you're a parent, for the first time when I became a parent, I'd never feared dying myself until I had kids. And now I was afraid of dying because I didn't want to leave them. I'm not actually afraid of death itself, but leaving your children behind. And that makes you sad, right? And that's what Jesus was experiencing. He knew he was going to the cross. And he knew his disciples would be heartbroken. And so he's weeping and saying, Lord, is there any other way? I don't want to be separated from them. Not for a moment. Not for a moment. And this is God's desire. And so where we meet here is in God's Holy Spirit. In this space. This is where we gather and how Jesus was communicating with the Father and in the Father, it's because they were together in the Spirit. When he went and communed in the Spirit with his Father, then they would join into this space. In the Greek, there's two words. There's kairos and there's chronos. Chronos is time, like your watch, like I'm running out of time. Chronos is time. Kairos, time, is not in Greek. Kairos is a moment. Kairos time is a moment. It's, a, it's like a space of an event that happens. It's like you share a moment with somebody. And so this is the Kairos of God here in the Spirit. And so when we abide with the Father and the Son, when we come into the presence of God through worship, through praying in tongues, and when we come with that spirit and we even read the scriptures, when we come into God's presence, then we come into that place of spirit and we have a kairos moment with the Lord. And it ignites your spirit and it fuels you and gives you fire. It gives you confidence. It gives you direction. It gives you a sense of strength and purpose and reason because your purpose in your life will only be found in Christ. It will be in that space, in the Holy Spirit. That is when you have that kairos moment with God that your life all of a sudden takes on purpose. In the Old Testament, when they went to build the tabernacle, God is looking amongst a bunch of Jewish people that are Bedouins. They've been slaves. They've been in slavery for like hundreds and hundreds of years. They don't have gifts. They don't have strengths. They're just poor people in the desert. And Scripture says that God poured out His Spirit in different men and women and gave them craftsmanship because all of a sudden, when God drew them into this moment and there, He just poured it out on them. That a guy went to bed one night and he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't got no skills. I don't got no talents. 
I don't got nothing. And he woke up the next morning going, I see a temple and I suddenly think I can build it all. Someone chucked him a piece of wood. He goes, let me see that. And he's like, people like, that's an amazing face of a lion. He's like, yeah, I have no idea how I did that. I couldn't do that. I didn't even know how to chop wood. And now I'm carving lion heads in wood. He went from having nothing to having supernatural God-given ability. And in this space, in here, there's mystery. There's gifts that you have that you don't know you have because they haven't been downloaded yet. You haven't been plugged in yet. There's ideas, there's invention, there's business, there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there's gifts of healing and miracles, but the whole church has not even attempted yet to really enter into that place. The Christians that know about it, the charismatics that know this space exists, unfortunately rarely come because they don't know the gospel of grace. They're living under such shame and guilt and condemnation, trying to get God impressed with them, that when they approach this, they don't approach it free in their heart. They don't approach the throne of grace with boldness. They approach with intimidation, so they can't fully go in. So there is such a small group that ever go actually in there, but you can all go. And that's where I'm trying to lead us, so that you can have a kairos moment with God and set your life on fire and discover things in there that you didn't know even existed. And it's exciting, and it's alive. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening in to The Refuge. For more information or podcasts, please visit myrefuge.ca.